Welcome to Head On History. I am your host, Ali A. Alomi. Uh, this is a special episode brought to you by yours truly in an attempt to try to understand and explain what's currently going on. What I'd like to discuss today is the history of Saudi Arabia and its relationship to the United States. This is within the context of what is going on internationally right now. For those of you that are following the news, um, you're already aware of the kind of crisis that's currently going on for those that don't, as well as for posterity, future peoples. Welcome. Hello. Hopefully we have flying cars by now. But if you were listening to this, then know that what happened is that on October 2nd, 2018, Jamal Khashoggi, a, a uh, journalist from the Washington Post and a Saudi national, uh, went into the embassy in Istanbul, the Saudi consulate in uh, Istanbul, where he was trying to get paperwork uh, for his upcoming nuptials, and he disappeared for a week. Uh, there was no understanding of what had happened to him. Early leaks had come out that maybe had, Saudi Arabia had murdered him. Uh, Saudi Arabia had vehemently denied it. By the end of about a week, there was more concrete evidence, including the claim by Turkey that they had uh, visual, they had audio uh, evidence of uh, Jamal entering into the consulate and being beaten, uh, tortured, and then murdered. Uh, going so far as to say that Eve, they even knew that he was dismembered, that he was uh, basically cut up into pieces in the consulate itself. To, again, Saudi Arabia very clearly denied any aspect of this. They said they, 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 he, 20 minutes later he walked out of the embassy. But for whatever reason, they were unable to provide any evidence since apparently all videos stopped working. At this point, Turkey released... Uh, a picture that showed Jamal Khashoggi entering into uh, the consulate but never coming out. Then, you know, Saudi Arabia and Turkey kind of got into a back and forth. Saudi Arabia agreed to allow Turkey into the consulate. They had this weird moment where right before, the very day of, before the investigation came, Saudi Arabia invited a cleaning crew into the consulate. And this, you know, international reports just caught this cleaning crew coming in with bleach and paint. And and Turkey confirmed when they went in that much of it had been repainted and cleaned. But again, an evidence was brought, claimed they had evidence that uh, they found biological or physical evidence that this death had happened. Now Saudi Arabia has taken kind of a lighter stance. The reports are indicating that they're no longer going to deny the death, but going to say that it was an interrogation gone wrong, uh, trying to pin it possibly on a general close to the current crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. That's where we're at right now if you haven't been paying attention. Where we're headed is likely that, or now to be clear, we, these are reports of evidence. We haven't actually seen the evidence ourselves. But the indication by both Turkish intelligence and American intelligence is that this is uh, this has happened and the evidence is solid here. 
why we think that Saudi Arabia has taken a back stance and why the United States, while Donald Trump initially is very defensive of Saudi Arabia, going so far as to very erroneously claim that this was like the Brett Kavanaugh situation of uh, innocent until proven guilty. I mean, if I was Brett Kavanaugh, I probably wouldn't want to be compared to a person who just committed murder in the consulate. Um, but, you know... Inadvertently, perhaps a more apt metaphor or comparison than Trump had intended to. But what happens is all of a sudden the Trump administration, after supposedly seeing the evidence, the Tur Turkish government says, we showed them the evidence, they've taken a different stance. And they've, Steve Mnuchin, who is the Treasury Secretary, has pulled out of an investment conference. They've become more hesitant. So it, it, all indications are that the evidence is solid. And within the posting of this episode or within a couple of weeks of this episode, the evidence will be made available or uh, the you know it'll become definitive. What we're likely seeing in this process is really Saudi Arabia and Turkey negotiating what the narrative will be. It's probable that they're trying to either go the route of saying, well, the entire royal family didn't know. So King Salman is not aware of what's going on. This was all MBS. Or they're going to go the route of saying, okay, this happened, but we'll agree with the Saudis and say that this was a rogue general. The original defense of, you know, this was an interrogation gone wrong is probably one of the most, they floated this idea out first and it was just, everyone went, you've got to be kidding me. One of the dumbest excuses, like, seriously, they're going with the defense of we're incompetent torturers, not brutal murderers. That's actually what they're saying. Um, but it has been a kind of moment of crisis in U.S.-Saudi relations. It's brought to uh, bear and light the crisis that's going on in Yemen. Uh, and in particular, it has shown a very huge spotlight on the uh, investment of Saudi Arabia, particularly MBS, into the Saudi, into the Trump regime. And I use the word regime here. Uh, quite deliberately, the Trump family through Kushner has a lot of financial ties with Saudi Arabia. And so this has all kind of come to light. This is a mess. I mean, this is a moment of real horror. Of, I mean, if you imagine this is a new Gaddafi moment in where a journalist is brutally murdered in a consulate by a prince. Now, Jamal Khashoggi was not some great radical. Contrary to kind of the hagiography that's emerging post his death, this guy was just an mildly critical of the Saudi regime. In fact, he was originally friends of part of the inner circle of the royal family. And then uh, the Yemen war became a kind of turning point. He was a person who spoke truth to power, who was honest, who, who was really shining a light on the disturbing developments in Saudi Arabia, but he was not that intensive a critic. To target Jamal Khashoggi is to really send a message to say that even mildest criticism will not be tolerated. And our citizens, wherever you are in the world, and many of whom have left Saudi Arabia to, for Istanbul or D.C., Saudi nationals who are in kind of self-imposed exile, basically putting them all under watch. That's what's going on right now. And it looks like the international community, because this was a journalist, is starting to respond. I mean, for several years now, Turkey, I mean, uh, Saudi Arabia has been bombing Yemen and literally kill using U.S.-made weapons to bomb school buses 
in Yemen. And no one has really been on an international level been paying too much attention to it. One probably one of the greatest humanitarian crises uh, of our lifetime, along with the Rohingya and the Syrian refugee crisis. Um, uh, but now this was the kind of a straw that broke the camel's back. And, and I don't use the, the term camel here in any particular reason. Uh, but this is, this is the moment where things have, are starting to turn around. So we'll see what happens. But in order to understand this kind of moment, how we got to this, we are going to provide you with a little bit of history. And that is what this podcast and the special episodes in particular are geared towards. Putting things in historical context and trying to kind of do a deeper analysis than kind of the normal geopolitics or international chess playing. Let's go a little bit deeper. To understand Saudi Arabia, you have to first understand the founding of its ideology. And the founding of its ideology, which is known as Wahhabism, a kind of derogatory term uh, for uh, Salafism, you go to its founder, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, in 1703. He's born near Riyadh, and he is a religious reformer. He is a Puritan-minded Muslim. He's born within the context of the Ottoman Empire's decreasing power. So up until this point, Muslims really fell within kind of three major empires. The Mughals in South Asia, the Safavids in the Iranian plateau, and the Ottomans in North Africa, the Levant, and Anatolia, and the Caucasus. The Ottomans, however, all three of these empires, by the 18th century, were starting to fragment fray and decay. That doesn't necessarily mean they were in full decline. The Ottomans uh, during the time were also uh, exploring uh, the Indian Ocean, kind of doing new trade routes. It's a fantastic book on this if anyone's interested, uh, known as The Ottoman Age of Exploration by Casale. It really talks about that, that while politically there may be some, some fragmentation and fraying, the Ottoman Empire was still having a cultural renaissance, an economic renaissance, kind of pushing back against the narrative, the poor man of Europe narrative. But it's within this context that Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab emerges, and he sees the Ottoman Empire's kind of growing weakness as a sign of religious decay. That the Ottomans were too tolerant, that they were too lax, that they had allowed bidda, that is innovation, to seep into Islam. They were tolerant of same-sex relations by the 1860s or so. Uh, the Ottoman empires had actually decriminalized homosexuality uh, or same-sex relationships. The, they were too tolerant of uh, women's rights. I mean, women had access to property and all these things. They saw all of this as, as starkly different from his vision of Islam, which was a very... Puritan Arabian version of Islam that tried to eliminate all the kind of developments of Islam that happened post-Muhammad, the rise of the Abbasids, the kind of Persianate contributions to Islam, poetry, music, the uh, cultural uh, you know, blossoming of, of Greek philosophy being translated in Arabic. He wanted to remove all that. He saw all of that as innovation. And we wanted to return to a strict and Puritan interpretation of Islam. Now, we often talk about it, of, of his ideology as being conservative, but it's actually not conservative in that, in the strictest sense. It's actually very novel. Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab really rejects traditional conservative Islamic scholarship in favor of new interpretations of the Hadith 
and the Quran. And he writes this book known as Kitab al-Tawheed, that is the book of unity, in which he puts God's unity as central to Islam more than anything else. And anything that kind of takes away from God's unity was deemed a threat, even that meant uh, the veneration of Muhammad himself. And he's not particularly popular in his uh, region. He's not particularly likable. He's kind of kicked out. His own brother calls him an extremist. But he meets somebody. He meets somebody uh, in 1744 named Muhammad bin Saud. And Muhammad bin Saud is a local chief who basically says to him, look, I will spread your message far and wide in turn, I ask you to recognize my authority as this sort of temporal leader. This alliance between the House of Saud and what becomes known as the Ash-Sheikh or the family of the Sheikh becomes the heart of the legitimacy for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And the two go on a massive purging campaign in which they try to conquer uh, Arabia, the Nejd and the broader region from Ottoman hands, wrest it out of the local, the hands of the local chiefs and kind of create this unified new kingdom. And they declare a jihad. So it's interesting that the kind of first Wahhabi jihad is actually declared against their fellow Muslims. And it's declared against the Shia population, against Sufis. They cut down the sacred trees. They attack the intersex guardians of the holy shrines. They attack uh, Mecca and Karbala. It's, they even attack Prophet Muhammad's shrine in Medina, arguing that it was it had become a place of idolatry um, and that you, you know, taking away from the unity of God. In 1802, they managed to go outside of Arabia and target Karbala. This was a horrible moment. They attacked the, pilgr the Shia pilgrimage of Karbala and kind of probably the second tragedy at Karbala, the first, of course, being the Battle of Karbala, which we covered in our uh, special episode on Muharram. Go and check that out. They attack, believed to be anywhere from 500 to 5,000 Shia are killed. The numbers aren't quite clear, but they're murdered in this kind of cold blood. And the Ottomans, while not particularly favorable to the Shia because of their tensions with the Safavids, saw this as a direct threat to the pilgrimage sites because ownership of the region that eventually becomes known as Iraq, Mesopotamia, rested on the capacity for the empire to provide protection for pilgrims. So if the Safavids ruled it, they needed to protect the pilgrims. If the Ottomans ruled it, they needed to protect the pilgrims. This becomes a big deal. In 1803, they go on and attack Mecca, the holy site itself, conquered and taken over. This is when the Ottomans are like, oh, no, that's not okay. We need to respond to this. But from 1803 on, they've established a kind of mini kingdom in Arabia with Wahhabism at its heart. Now, Muhammad Abdul Wahhab at this point has died himself, but his message has spread and he's gathered a large following of these kind of Puritan radical thinkers. And these thinkers are kind of rethinking Islam in this new anti-Ottoman lens, one that breaks with the traditional madhabs. Even though Ibn Abdul Wahhab was trained as a sort of Hanbali, he's thinking in a kind of new way, really breaking with traditional conservative Islamic thinking.
By 1811, the Ottomans had retaliated. The Sultan in, uh, in Istanbul called upon the Khadiv of Egypt, who at the time was Pasha Muhammad Ali. Pasha Muhammad Ali is the famous reformer or modernizer of Egypt who goes on to basically establish his own Egyptian uh, kingdom for himself. But in this time, uh, he sends out Pasha Muhammad Ali, the Khadiv of Egypt, he sends his son in what becomes known as the Ottoman uh, Wahhabi Wars. And they last from 1811 to 1818. So it's about a seven-year war. It's a long war. But by the end of it, the Ottomans have crushed, utterly crushed, the alliance between the House of Saud and the Wahhabi sect. Now, I'm going to use the term Wahhabi, but it's also interchangeable with the word Salafism. Salafism is a kind of broader, uh, modernist, reformist, revivalist tradition of Islam that emerges in the kind of colonial moment um, with some precursors in the pre-modern world. Wahhabism is a particular branch of Salafism that comes to dominate the broader tradition of Salafism, and we'll talk about how that comes about. But by 1818... The Wahhabi Sound Alliance, it's done. They've been forced into a, far, a little corner of Arabia. Ibn Saud himself is sent into what is Kuwait. Um, and there would have been a footnote in history. Some poor schmuck would have written a dissertation on it and no one would have read it. <laughs> you know, that's really the history of what happened. The Ottomans defeated this soundly. I mean, to the point where like, there's no chance of them coming back until the British got involved. <laughs> So as usual, the British stick their nose in and then muck things up. Um, and anyone who has taken a class with me knows that we talk quite a bit about the unintended consequence of Britain's mistakes in the Middle East from boozy Winston Churchill's uh, hiccup to his uh, basically tricking the U.S. into believing that Iran had was turning into communists to convince them to overthrow the democratically elected leader of Mohammed Mossadegh. So there's kind of three big, I would say four big Saudi errors, right? One is their handling of Israel and Palestine. One is their uh, handling of the Sykes-Picot agreement, particularly uh, the dividing up of, of Mesopotamia and the Levant, their, the involvement in Iran, and then this is the other one, is that their, their alliance with the House of Saud. These are the kind of four big U.S. or the four big uh, British errors. So by 1902, Abdullah Haman's son, Abdulaziz, who be, later became known as Ibn Saud, he had captured some parts of Riyadh, and he was bringing al-Saud back from the kind of Najd. He was returning them. So it was the kind of re Emergence of uh, the House of Saud, Ibn Saud. And this was likely a result of their alliance with a group of people known as the Ikhwan, meaning the Brotherhood. This was a tribal army that was inspired by Wahhabism. The Ikhwan were former Bedouins that had converted to Islam and were transformed into this kind of mobile army aimed particularly at kind of hit-and-run raids. And they were led by a guy named Faisal al-Dawish. They had formed, they had become kind of the military branch of Ibn Saud. So a kind of militant manifestation of Wahhabism and literal tribal warfare. And in 1916, they had gained a little bit of traction from 1902 to 1916. They'd gained some traction. Now what the Britain did is during the height of World War I, they encouraged 
the Sharif of Mecca, that is the leader of Mecca, a guy named Hussein bin Ali, to lead a revolt against the Ottoman Empire. It's basically said, if you rise up against your co-religionists, against your fellow Muslims, we will give you your own kingdom. Fight against the Ottomans for us, and we will support your claims to a kingdom. Now, this revolt was, was kind of justified or articulated along the lines of a pan-Arab revolt. This is significant because in this time period, at the turn of the century, at the rise of the 20th century, with the collapse, the beginning of the fragmenting of the Ottoman Empire, the Muslim world turned to kind of three frameworks to uh, recreate identity. The first framework was nationalism, the rise of sort of nationalist movements. This was a seeping in from Europe of nationalist ideology, vis-a-vis -vis the Balkans in particular, in which we saw that the Ottoman millets, these autonomous religious communities, redefined themselves usually along ethnic lines. So the Armenian Orthodox millet, the Greek Orthodox millet became the Greek millet, the Armenian millet, and reimagined themselves as an ethnic community uh, that was entitled to to a nation with boundaries that uh, and and kind of sovereign sovereignty over their own lands. This nationalism vis-a-vis -vis the Balkans had also spread into the Arab world. So we had started to see the rise in Arab nationalism. The second way was through pan-identity movements. These were pan-Islamism, the appeal to say, no, we are all Muslim first and foremost, and we must unite into sort of a unified ummah. But also pan-Arab identities. This was the bringing in of kind of the pan-Slavic uh, concepts from the Balkans and Eastern Europe into the Arabian world, this imagining that there is a single unified people known as Arab. It's really kind of a fiction of the 20th century. This thing known as the Arab and that they can all unify against uh, the people who speak differently from them. In this case, it would be the Turks. This is when we start to see a kind of division between the kind of introduction of nationalism and pan-Arabism. We start to see a shift away from Ottomanism, which was the identity uh, that was put forth by the Tanzimat, an attempt to create a single unified imperial identity to unify everyone. Move away from Ottomanism to Pan-Arabism, as well as the introduction of nationalism was a way to kind of break things up. The third way that people, the, the identity was framed was through Islamic means. Now, these three categories aren't discrete, meaning that you don't, they're not uh, separate. They can blend over one another quite a bit. So we'll find cases of Islamic nationalism, and we'll find cases of pan-Islamism, we'll find uh, cases of pan-Arab nationalism. So they're, they're kind of mixing and melting. But these are the three main frameworks uh, as I teach it, um, and as I, as I kind of understand it. And the revolt against the Ottomans was seen as a sort of pan-Arab revolt. It was a response to Ottomanism, a sort of rejection of Ottomanism. No, we are not all Ottoman citizens. We are Arabs. We speak a different language. We are a different culture, a different history, and so on and so forth. Now, Ibn Saud does not actually participate in this particular uprising because he doesn't appeal to pan-Arabism. He appeals to pan-Islamism, the idea that Islam is the identity that unifies people. In 1914, he actually signs a sort of secret treaty with the British known as the Treaty of Darin. Uh, and eventually, basically, it's an agreement where 
the Saudi, the, the British kind of hedge their bets to go, okay, well, maybe Hussein will rise up against, uh, Hussein uh, bin Ali will rise up against the Ottomans. But here we also have this other force that is gaining traction, Ibn Saud with his Ikhwan. Maybe we can turn to them. And so they start to give this group arms, a series of weapons and arms and bullets and, and whatnot, so they can wage their war out. Now, the reason they do this is because at the same time that uh, this is going on in, in the Ottoman world, World and in Arabia, the kind of peripheries of the Ottoman world, the British were involved in Central Asia, in South Asia, particularly in Afghanistan. And the British were worried that with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, that the Muslim world's attention would turn to Afghanistan, which was building a very strong pan-Islamist sentiment, the idea that we are all Muslims and we must resist colonialism. The pan-Islamism of Afghanistan, which also had a very strong component of jihad was very anti-colonial and for afghans they had defined jihad as an anti-colonial movement a movement against the british specifically and the british couldn't afford to lose afghanistan because then russia would have access to india so for them this was an issue that like that pan-islamism the afghan pan-islamism which was uh, relatively modern which was based in hanafi thought which was anti-colonial we can't afford to allow that to happen. I mean, we have uh, records from, from actual captains like uh, Captain uh, N. Bray in 1917 who very clearly write about their anxieties. They go, uh, the extreme vitality of the movement that is pan-Islamism. It is essential that the country to whom Mohammedans look should not be Afghanistan. We should therefore create a state more convenient for ourselves to whom the attention of Islam should be turned. We have an opportunity in Arabia. This is Captain Bray very clearly stating why the Treaty of Durin was important, why the British are forming this alliance with um, the House of Saud because of their fear that the pan-Islamism was going to move towards Afghanistan. And they said no. We let, this is our chance. They even go so far as to tell the Ibn Saud, here is your opportunity to restore a truly authentic Arab caliphate. And that's interesting. They define the caliphate as Arab in this instant. Not like the Ottoman, this Turkish caliphate, this is wrong. We can restore it to its true definition, an Arab caliphate. Now this is a real fucked up reading of history. It's a really bad reading of history. In fact, the caliphate for hundreds of thousands of years wasn't in the Arab world. It was in the Persianate world. The Abbasids, the Abbasids aren't Arab. They're, they're the Muwali. They're Persianates who speak Arabic. And then after them, it was rested in the Ottomans, the Turks. So this is a real kind of deliberate rereading of history, but it's part of this imagined past. Oh, it was originally an Arab caliphate and then it gone astray. We can restore that. Let's do this. Let's put our investment in the House of Saud. And the House of Saud ends up becoming quite successful. With British support, they really take on this whole like, yeah, we will be the new heart of Islam. 
They accept the British designation that we will make this the heart of Islam. And by 1921, they had conquered most of the region. And they had, the, Ibn Saud had taken the Najd uh, and the Hejaz uh, from about 1921. He took the Najd, 1924 to 1925, he uh, takes the Hejaz. In fact, in 1926, he declares himself the king of the Hejaz. And so what ends up, Hejaz and Najd are two regions in Arabia. But what ends up happening is he kind of administers both of these separately. He calls himself the king of the uh, Najid and of the Hejaz. So he takes the claim that they're both king. He's the king of both. He basically unifies, Ibn Saud unifies the region under his monarchy. In the 1920s, the British are the first to recognize the Ibn Saud. And that's because they're relatively favorable towards the for, towards the. Uh, uh, the British. And they're okay with the British. And so alliances made, international relationships are developed. This is how the kingdom of Saudi Arabia comes to be. It is an ideology born with Wahhabism, fused with the political power of a very wealthy chieftain, the House of Saud, with the backing of a militant uh, tribal conflict led by the Ikhwan and supported by the British. By about the 1930s, the U.S. starts to recognize Saudi Arabia. Now, originally, all the kind of management of Saudi Arabia, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, was done out of Egypt. And the U.S. was really just interested in kind of an oil relationship. And in 1933, the U.S. recognized Saudi Arabia. And in turn, Saudi Arabia allowed the U.S. to start to mine oil in the region. Uh, this became known as Aramco, that is the Arab-American company. Uh, and this was important because at this time, we start to see a massive need for oil and Arabia is an untouched reserve. Now, this is an interesting relationship, one that kind of replicates itself around the Middle East and elsewhere in which you have uh, the kind of developed, so-called developed countries in the core, to use the kind of Wallerstinian term here, uh, coming into these periphery countries like Saudi Arabia, Iran, etc., and laying claim to the oil. This becomes a sort of alliance between the elites and foreign businesses. So it's profitable to a small segment of the population, but not profitable to the rest of the people of the Middle East. We saw this with BP or British Petroleum in Iran, who had basically uh, owned Iranian oil from 1901 on, and now we're seeing it in the case of Saudi Arabia. So while the, you end up having the monarchy being very wealthy and, you know, gaining, uh, getting a lot of profit a lucrative from this lucrative relationship with American capitalists and industrialists. The money oil isn't filtering into the rest of the country, right? Not a lot is happening there. But oil begins to mine. And then in February 16th, 1943, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, finally declares uh, that the defense of Saudi Arabia is, quote-unquote, vital to the defense of the United States. And that's because of the uh, developing relationship vis-a-vis -vis oil. This is now, uh, as a result of the World War II, a need for oil, the rise in uh, oil consumption in America. Uh, and so we're, we're seeing that, that because of the presence of oil, the U.S. starts to not only recognize Saudi Arabia, but build that relationship. And quite famously, um, this is a kind of memorialized, if you will, in this photo from February 14, 1945, in which King Ibn Saud meets with FDR on the USS Quincy, really kind of famous image of them all uh, sitting on this, uh, you know, massive U.S. naval ship. 
This relationship, however, is a business one. It's not a particularly friendly one. It's not a particularly excited one. And the U.S. isn't that interested in Saudi Arabia at first, only in protecting its kind of oil interests. Things start to change in 1956 with the Suez Crisis. What ends up happening is the Suez Crisis is a watershed moment. It's a turning moment. Up until this point, we've been talking about British influence. The fact that the Middle East looks the way that it does is really a relationship of uh, the British and the French, the Sykes-Picot Agreement dividing up the Middle East the way into the kind of these categories, kind of imagining the you know, the unification of these people known as the Arabs who then become the Jordanians, who become the Lebanese. Like they really kind of an imagination, Orientalist imagining of the Middle East that is then codified into into kind of uh, mandates and borders to the founding of Saudi Arabia. This is all the British, right? To the, you know, trying to shift away pan-Islamism from Afghanistan, all the British. In 1956, what ends up happening is the Britain, France, and the Israel invades the Suez Canal and tries to take it from um, Jamal Abdel Nasser, who had a particularly hostile relationship with them. Already, the Arab world pissed off at the establishment of the State of Israel in 1949. The Suez Crisis was that turning point. It was a humiliating defeat for the Israeli-French-British alliance. What ended up happening was what looked, what originally was claimed to be kind of an impromptu, proactive strike, was actually pre-planned. It turned out that they had plotted this in advance, and Jamal Abdel Nasser was able to hold his own. As a result of this, this was the weakening of British power in the Middle East. By failing in the Suez crisis, by emerging as kind of the people with egg on, on his face, egg on their face, the British became less powerful in the Middle East. And their powers start to be broken up. Less people, I mean, literally one of the unintended consequences of the Suez crisis is revolutions and in independence movements. A series of countries, back to back, within a period of about 10 years, start to rebel against British rule, French rule, British colonialism, and French colonialism is overthrown. So the Suez crisis is a moment where the Middle East's, the power broker in the Middle East, the British and the French, lose their influence. Who gains it? The United States. Eisenhower was quite clever. Eisenhower had no interest in the Suez crisis. He's like, I don't want to get involved, and you people shouldn't be getting involved either. He actually told Britain, like, don't do it. And Britain did it anyways. This really impressed. Now, the reason why, why Eisenhower was not particularly interested in getting involved, he didn't have a good relationship with uh, Jamal Abdel Nasser anyways. Jamal Abdel Nasser was kind of starting to become pro-Soviet and also trying to create the uh, United Arab Republic playing up on pan-Islamism, but he wasn't interested in getting involved in the Suez crisis. This impressed the House of Saud. The House of Saud saw this and said, Eisenhower is a stable, he's a good dude. He's a good chap. We can build a good relationship with this man. And in turn, Eisenhower, while not originally particularly favorable towards Saudi Arabia, saw Saudi Arabia as the alternative to Jamal Abdel Nasser's pan-Arabism. Remember, we talked about the kind of three identities that were kind of shaped in the post-Ottoman world. Well, pan-Arabism was very big under Jamal Abdel Nasser, who created them really this kind of independent uh, Egypt. And he tried to appeal to pan-Arab sentiment to kind of create a unified bloc against European influence and against U.S. influence. 
in Syria eventually led to the establishment of what's known as the United Arab Republic, a kind of unified coalition between Egypt and uh, uh, Syria. Pan-Arabism was too secular, too pro-Soviet for the United States. Instead, they found that pan-Islamist sentiment, both in the form of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, as well as the Wahhabi brand in Saudi Arabia, was a viable alternative to pan-Arabism that it would be a great tool to use in resistance to Jamal Abdel Nasser. And so they relied heavily on the House of Saudi Arabia and built that relationship with them, putting their, you know, their money behind Wahhabism, going Wahhabism, that's the alternative to Pan-Arabism. Yeah, Pan-Arabism is secular. Yeah, Pan-Arabism is kind of a modernist project, but it's, it's too much aligned with the Soviets. We need to find someone who will be aligned with U.S. interests and therefore protect Aramco or, or deal with Aramco, and that is this Pan-Islamist sentiment of uh, Wahhabism. And in 1962, this kind of alliance really formalizes. Egypt attacks Saudi Arabia from bases in Yemen because in 1962, there's a, the Yemeni revolution and Saudi Arabia was super anti-revolution. Now, that's interesting, right? 1962, Saudi Arabia is uh, anti-Yemeni revolution. Egypt, foreign country, uses Yemen to launch attacks on Saudi Arabia. In turn, Saudi Arabia turns to JFK, and they ask JFK for help, and JFK sends U.S. warplanes in 1963 to help the Saudis, and from then on, you have military bases in Arabia on. But that's interesting. That configuration, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, foreign countries, that is the kind of history of the Yemen war. That tense relationship structures the contemporary moment. That's not to say that from 1962 to 2011, that's, that's how the Yemen war is a direct response to that. No, but that history, that structures their relationship, that structures the international kind of alliances and friendships and hostilities and tensions is, code, is, is kind of brought to bear in the 1960s and re-kind of imagined and repurposed and re-invoked in the 2010s with the war in Yemen. But we start to see this kind of moving amount of alliances um, in the Arabian Gulf in, in 1960s. The establishment of a, a bases, if you will, military bases in uh, Saudi Arabia is not a, a, a popular idea in the in the kind of pan-Islamist movement. Other members of the Wahhabi sect become very, very annoyed with the U.S. being literally, you know, right on the doorsteps of Mecca. They were not happy with this relationship. So the House of Saud has to balance on one hand wanting America to be there because it legitimizes their authority. They I can call upon America's aid. It's a very visible sign of the America's backing of the House of Saud with their ideological legitimacy in Wahhabism. Despite this, and as a result of this kind of tension, the relationship hasn't always been positive. In fact, we see kind of a, a moment in, in the 1970s during the Yom Kippur War, uh, or in the 19, late 1960s, early 1970s, during the Yom Kippur War in which Faisal, the king, decides to actually contribute to an oil embargo against the U.S. in, in Europe, kind of uh, in, in favor of the Arab countries that were involved in the Yom Kippur War. Uh, this was not uh, a, a positive decision or, or received favorably, obviously, by the United States. 
Um, but it was a moment in this kind of, you know, the th threat that Faisal said, basically, was that we are a nation of desert dwellers. We can survive without water for so long. We can easily survive without oil. They did being the... the the fear was that if they didn't sell oil to the United States, the finance it would somehow cripple this young kingdom. Um, but the uh, embargo was a kind of low moment in, in U.S.-Saudi relationships. It's reversed by uh, 1974, in which the U.S. pressures Israel into negotiating with Syria over the Golan Heights. And as a result of that, the relationships with Saudi Arabia are restored. They go, okay, they've, we've got what we wanted. We've pressured the U.S., at least to the point of forcing Israel to negotiate over the Golan Heights. They sign uh, this agreement in 1975, about $2 billion worth in military contracts, and really the kind of expansion and solidifying of the uh, oil economic relationship with OPEC, uh, which becomes this kind of massive oil cartel, if you will. Uh, this kind of spans the globe, if you will. This relationship with the U.S., uh, raises tension. So on one hand, trying to balance the U.S. relationship and the uh, Wahhabi, the pan-Islamic relationship, led to this oil embargo. On one hand, supporting the pan-Islamist visions for Palestine, Saudi Arabia joined on the embargo, right, as a result of the... Once that settled, and they, they go, okay, we're going to be best friends with, with America again, well, that pisses off the pan-Islamist side. And in 1979, the Wahhabi militants actually rise up against there's a small sect of Wahhabi uh, militants led by a guy named uh, Al-Otaibia and Al-Khatani. Uh, and these uh, militants, they have a kind of messianic component to them. They argue that one of them are actually the, the Messiah or the Mahdi. He's come to restore true Wahhabi Islam to Saudi Arabia. And what they do is they seize the Grand Mosque in Mecca. They accuse the House of Saud of becoming too westernized, and therefore they have lost their legitimacy. They've become too friendly with America. The French and Pakistani forces actually join Saudi National Guard and the army in trying to retake the mosque. It is not an easy process. In fact, the Saudis have to actually turn to a religious scholar, a guy named Ibn Baz, to get a fatwa from the ulema, the religious class, in order to justify the violence that would be taking place in the Grand Mosque, because violence is forbidden in the Grand Mosque and in Mecca. They take back the mosque, and they kill most of these rebels, and it's a violent, you know, suppression. It's not, you know, between the gunfire, lots of innocent people are killed. It's a, it's a stain on kind of Saudi Arabia's history, and really a marker, a really clear marker that no, is not all is is kosher. Not all is under their control and their power. Now, Saudi Arabia did something quite interesting. Rather than crack down on the religious elite who had kind of allowed this to happen, they realized that in order to secure their legitimacy, in order to say, hey, no, no, we haven't lost our legitimacy, they end up giving the religious authorities even more power, agreeing at that moment, from that moment on, that Wahhabism would become the sort of unofficial foreign policy of, of Saudi Arabia, that they would fund Wahhabi ideology abroad. They would fund madrasas, they would fund schools, and this becomes important because in the post-Ottoman world, where the ulama had kind of lost their authority because of the collapse of the Ottoman waqafs and endowments replaced with these kind of new state-sponsored land projects and land reforms, 
the charismatic Wahhabi preachers are able to enter into that vacuum and gain quite a bit of purchase. 1979 becomes the crucial turning point year in Middle Eastern history. You have the Iranian Revolution, which causes a deep crisis for Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia says we're supposed to be the only country that is an Islamic country. And yet we have this other, this other country, Iran, that claims to be in a republic. This is where Saudi Arabia turns on Iran up until this point. Uh, the Nixon Doctrine, which is basically to allow regional powers to set, preserve American interest, had really made Saudi Arabia and Iran the two pillars of Middle Eastern policy and Middle Eastern power brokers. With Iran becoming uh, the Islamic Republic, that Power, that pillar is gone. The U.S. leans even more heavily on Saudi Arabia, but Saudi Arabia in turn is turns against Iran. Then at the same time, you have the invasion of the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. This becomes the moment in which Saudi Arabia goes, okay, here's where we can test out our new foreign policy. And as a result of this kind of moment at home, the, the seizure of the Grand Mosque, they go, look, the Soviets have invaded Afghanistan. We will demonstrate our legitimacy by spreading Wahhabism. And so they begin by supporting the kind of international call to jihad against the Soviets. They put in money, they put in arms, and they send the kind of ideological preachers. This is how Wahhabism comes to Afghanistan. It is a result of something that happens domestically in Saudi Arabia first. The seizure of the Grand Mosque, the fear that they're losing religious legitimacy transforms them or encourages them to give more power to the religious elite by saying, we're going to spread your message abroad. And they first test those waters out in Afghanistan. This is also the moment in which they uh, ban the images of women, they start to enforce more strictly uh, gender segregation, and they give power over to a group of people known as, kind of colloquially, as the vice police, but who are known uh, more formally as the Committee for the Promotion of Virtue and the Prevention of Vice. If that isn't an Orwellian name, I don't know what is. Um, but the vice police basically are people who go around and uh, police the Muslim population. Why aren't you at prayer? Why are you not wearing your uh, headscarf? Why is there gender mixing? Things like that. So you have this religious elite that is gaining more and more power, a lot of it, and is now being, their ideology is being exported abroad. What does this do with the relationship with the United States? Well, the United States loves it because the United States is pro-spreading that pan-Islamist Wahhabism. It is a great alternative. to They say, look, if this jihad can be used to overthrow the Soviets, fantastic, more power to them. So the United States actually encourages Saudi Arabia to expand and spread Wahhabism because it's seen as a viable alternative to the kind of secular leadership of the Arab world. It's seen as a viable alternative to any pro-Soviet relationship that can be developed. This relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia, you know, encouraging jihadism, really takes another step in which they become super best friends for all of history. <laughs> you know, the two best friends that anyone can have during the Gulf War. So the Iraq's invasion of Kuwait in 1990 in August really secures the relationship between uh, U.S. and Saudi Arabia. King Fahad at the time joins the United States in declaring 
war on Iraq. It's also at this particular moment that the arms sales to Saudi Arabia increases. So at this point, it's not just oil that becomes a main interest uh, for America and Saudi Arabia. It is military interest, a military industrial interest. We can sell them weapons. We can sell them weapons and we can help to promote that kind of jihadist ideology abroad as a counter to these kind of uh, rulers that are outside of our interest. This is also the moment in which the U.S. permanently establishes uh, a military presence. While there was military bases before, during the kind of uh, crisis with Yemen, now is when they establish full-on U.S. presence from then on. And they see Saudi Arabia as a billion-dollar military industry that they can, uh, you know, apply to. There is, again, despite this relationship, it's not always smooth sailing. 9-11 was clearly a a moment of crisis, you know, a significant number, almost 80% of the 9-11 hijackers were Saudi nationals. So the question raised amongst the intelligence community, how is it possible that Saudi Arabia didn't know that this was going on? In many ways, the kind of, uh, the the Saudi hijackers that end up being participants in uh, 9-11 are the unintended consequences of the U.S. and Saudi Arabia spreading jihadism abroad. The very ideology that that they were spreading in 1979 in Afghanistan takes root and manifests as a sort of uh, resistance movements against America. The very people that are like, hey, let's we'll support them at first. The war in Soviet Afghan war ends. Those very people that were being supported by the United States end up turning on the United States, most famously under the guise of Osama bin Laden. So the jihadist movement turns against America, even though America is quite pro-jihad at first. And that's the beginning of the tension between the the United States and the Islamist factions. In the 1990s, we see the America, we see the United States turn away from its previous support of Islamist factions can still supporting Saudi Arabia. This uh, culminates in the kind of tragedy of, of 9-11, the kind of blowback, if you will, or the, the attack uh, of, of the Islamist factions that had spread. That doesn't mean the United States entirely rejects the Islamists. When it's useful, they do side with jihadist factions. We see that, for example, in Syria, there's, the U.S. is still on the side of al-Nusra, which is a, a al-Qaeda faction. But despite that kind of low moment in U.S.-Saudi relationships, overall, the relationship has been one that's building up to very close friendship, one in which the Saudi family was deeply uh, related and close to the house, the, the, the house of Bush, <laughs> the, the Bush family. Uh, they even you know, had one, uh, one of the princes, uh, Bandar, was called Bandar Bush because of how close he was to, to Bush. And we see this, this relationship cement even further with the Trump administration. Things kind of cooled under the Obama administration as a result of Obama opening up relationships, at least slightly, with Iran. This was seen as a threat to uh, Saudi Arabia, who from the moment of the uh, 1979, the Islamic Revolution, saw Iran as a hostile power and has been tense with uh, Saudi Arabia for ages, I mean, with Iran with ages, in fact, really heavily leaning uh, and, and, and exploiting sectarian difference, one that is really geopolitical more than it is theological, Sunni versus Shia. But after the Obama administration, with the coming of Trump, and in particular, 
Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, relationships have really warmed up even further. Uh, in, 19, in 2017, June 2017, King Salman actually removes Muhammad bin Naif, who's his brother, from all positions of power. The idea was that the brother was going to take off. A lot of the kind of Saudi uh, successions goes brother to brother to brother rather than father to son. And instead, Salman removes his brother and places in his crown uh, the crown prince, which is Muhammad bin Salman. Muhammad bin Salman had been cutting his teeth during the war in Yemen, uh, something that was another reason why relationships between the United States and Saudi Arabia had cooled. Warming of relationships with Iran, war in Yemen going on, Obama administration not entirely happy, even though it still gave tacit approval. But Mohammed bin Salman, who was defense minister at the time, cutting his teeth in Yemen, is now officially the crown prince in June 2017. The House of Saud has invested a lot of money in the Trump administration, particularly in Trump properties, and Kushner and MBS have a very close relationship. This results in the selling of military weapons to the House of Saud, about $100 billion or $110 billion worth of weapons. That is that relationship, the shift in the 90s to, from seeing Saudi Arabia as just an uh, kind of economic interest to seeing it as a military interest, that we can sell weapons to the Saudis. Uh, the military-industrial complex is in full swing here. So that history in the 90s is continuing to shape this present moment. This is a long history. Deep breath. But now we are at the contemporary moment. It is under Mohammed bin Salman that we start to see a change in the relationship between Wahhabism and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. For the beginnings of Saudi Arabia up until Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudis had rested their legitimacy on pan-Islamism, the idea that there is a single Islamic identity, a unified Islamic world uh, that should be guided by the ideology of Wahhabism, but who the custodians of who is the monarchy in Saudi Arabia. Now, this isn't popular in the Muslim world. No one in the Muslim world turns to Saudi Arabia and goes, yes, those are our religious leaders. No one does. While Mecca and Medina are certainly at the core of the pilgrimage sites and part of the sacred geography of Muslims, Arabia is not. Most Muslims have a very negative relationship with Arabia and the monarchy, but the monarchy still fashions or at least tries to tap in to pan-Islamist sentiment. But with MBS, there is a shift. MBS wants to consolidate power. So first what he does is he gathers up all his uncles and businessmen and he puts them in this kind of really rich-ass prison, the Ritz-Carlton, transforms the Ritz-Carlton into prison, calls it an anti-corruption movement, but really it's just it's a shakedown. It's a mob shakedown, and he takes a mafia. He just takes all their money, and apparently something about like thirty billion dollars worth that he makes. Uh, that money that he takes from uh, Bin Walid and others, his his family members, actually go to then paying for the weapons that Donald Trump sells to Saudi Arabia. So that's kind of an interesting tidbit there. Is that he actually the money he he basically uh, gathers from this from this shakedown is what he uses to pay for the weapons. But not only is he consolidating amongst the elite, he's also consolidating against the religious authorities. Any religious authority, remember, they have a kind of a new, kind of a frenemy relationship. The legitimacy of the House of Saud is rested on Wahhabism, but Wahhabism is also the force that goes, no, you've become too westernized. What does he do to those clerics? He starts to arrest them. So in 2018, we see the arrest of uh, Salah al-Taleb who is a very famous Wahhabi preacher, arrested and put in jail. This is a turning point. What we're seeing in Saudi Arabia, and someone's going to write their dissertation, is a shift away 
from pan-Islamism to nationalism. Remember, I said that there are three frameworks of identity that exist in the Middle East post-Ottoman. Nationalism, pan-identities, or Islamic. We are seeing, we're living through this moment in which a, a boy king or boy prince is trying to consolidate power and he's leaning more heavily on nationalism than he is on pan-Islamic sentiment. This is why we saw MBS show up in America and do his stupid charm offensive that everyone fucking fell head over heels for, right? And he's shaking hands with Tim Cook, he's shaking hands with, with uh, Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg, and he's doing this, everyone's, oh, look at him, he's so charming, and he's a reformer, and he's going to make Saudi Arabia this uh, international technological marvel, he's going to create all this, because what he's doing is he's arguing, like all nationalists do, that his legitimacy is not rested on his capacity to tap into Islamic sentiment or his custodianship of Mecca and Medina, but his authority is rested in his ability to create a modern nation-state. He's using the same kind of language of the early 19th and 20th century nationalist. He is kind of talking the language of Ataturk. He's not fully abandoning Islam for the record, but he's definitely consolidating power in a different way. Um, Mind you, while he's doing this kind of charm offensive, he's brutally murdering people in Yemen, right? Bombing the shit out of them in Yemen. So it's, 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 it's really kind of the elite were bought into it. But anyone who was an actual expert in the Middle East is like, yeah, we're not buying this. <laughs> he's a brutal ruler uh, who's, who's clearly just consolidating power. And it turns out that it's true. With the death of Khashoggi, we're seeing that MBS's nationalism is a particularly violent form of nationalism. One that moves away from any type of pan-Islamic sentiment of unity and centers identity and authority in one family, the House of Saud. He sees himself not as the guardian of Islam and certainly not as some sort of custodian. Instead, he sees himself as a modern king, a king that is trying to create a modern nation state. And that nation state is not justified. Its modernity is not explained vis-a-vis liberalism, the rights of people. It's seen vis-a-vis economic and technocratic power. Technology is the sign of modernity in Saudi Arabia, not, say, democracy or liberalism. This history is a fascinating history. It's a long history, and there's a sudden turn. So you have this kind of trajectory from the 1800s to about the 2000s of uh, an ideology, Wahhabism and a family, the relationship between the two of them, the Ibn House, Ibn Saud, and Ash-Sheikh. This relationship for about 200 years or so, right? all going well, and then the 2010s come, and you take a far right turn, and that right turn is into nationalism. That's the moment that we're in now. Now, to be clear, Wahhabism was just as brutal as Saudi nationalism. It's just a different type of logic, whereas in Wahhabism, the House of Saud had some checks on it, and that is the religious elite. Now we're seeing those checks vanish in favor of an absolutist monarchy, that is the House of Saud. This is a fascinating moment, a kind of dark moment, and certainly one where I think someone's going to write their dissertation on how uh, the House of Saud really leans on, on nationalism and moves away from pan-Islamism. What this means for U.S.-Saudi relations is anyone's guess at this point. It's possible that this will bring a lot of tensions between the United States and Saudi Arabia, but if this history is any indication, 
we've gone we've had those tensions before from the oil embargo from a variety of different moments but in the end the one thing that always persevered was our economic interests and our military interest. If we need to continue to buy oil from them, and if we need to continue to sell them weapons, then I suspect that no matter what MBS does, no matter what Mohammed bin Salman does, the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States will endure. Anyways, that's where I'm going to end it today. I know it was a little bit of a longer podcast, but I wanted to really dig into the deeper root history here, see how history structures the present, the relationship of the House of Saud and Wahhabism, how the change of that is indicating some different shifts in the geopolitics of the region, as well as the changing relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia. Hopefully you found this useful. Let me know what your thoughts are. Be sure to hit me up on Twitter or on Instagram uh, using the hashtag head on history, or you can at me at A-A-O-L-O-M-I. Anyway, thank you for listening, and stay smart, you beautiful history nerds. (laughs) 